calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, I'm Jason Voss, Content Director for CFA Institute. Joining me today for a Take 15 interview is Tom Parker. He is Managing Director at BlackRock and their Chief Investment Officer of Model-Based Fixed Income. Welcome. Thank you. So, you know, talk to me about these three super cycles that I, I know that you've earmarked as, you know, if they're not already having ended, are coming to an end soon. Yeah. So I, I, the big one is the debt super cycle, which, you know, started in the, the 80s. It really was a reaction to kind of slowing potential growth that we were seeing in the U.S. And so, in a sense, just like a company will lever up an ROA to get a higher ROE, we started seeing leverage find its way throughout the companies and, and especially in the consumers to maintain a certain lifestyle as potential growth got lower. Uh, you know, the great financial crisis really brought that to an end. Not that leverage isn't still increasing, but kind of the pace of it and, and its ability to kind of magnify uh, returns. So throughout the West, you've basically seen the end of, of that debt super cycle. Now, we're still seeing one in China, which just brings up the second super cycle, which was really the kind of China EM commodity super right, cycle. Right, sure. and, and commodities in EM were really just a derivative of China. But what you saw is China was growing at a huge rate. And, and they actually grew through the great financial crisis because they did a fair amount of stimulus. Uh, and one of the few countries that had the debt capacity to do stimulus right. during the financial crisis. But then about 2011, that kind of ran dry. And we've been seeing them secularly just decline in their GDP and their NGDP growth has really come down quite a bit. In fact, NGDP went from 20% in 2011 to about 5% last year. So a pretty big collapse in growth in China, which has had ramifications throughout asset classes. Right. And so what's the third super cycle? Oh, the demographic super cycle, right. yeah, yeah. which, uh, you know, there certainly were a lot of benefits as, as the baby boomers aged. You know, originally the inflation problem of the 70s was about too many young workers with low productivity skills. You know, so the inflation cycle that we saw there was very related to demographics. But then as they aged, they became more productive. We got a huge productivity increase for a while, uh, you know, savings, et cetera, et cetera. But now we have the aging of that. And, and all that's done is it's done a couple of things to potential growth is Obviously, part of potential growth is working age population growth, and that has really slowed a lot as, as each year more and more people retire. The other thing is that, that older people tend to save, uh, so the savings ratio is starting to rise, which is bringing down consumption. Sure. Uh, and then in reaction to this, you, know, you have companies spending less on CapEx because they see that they overbuilt in the prior decades, you know, think of retail. Retail is very overstored. 
relative to the demand that we're seeing now. And to say nothing of e-commerce, right? So, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. They're fighting two, two big things. Right. They're overstored and they have a new competitor that they never had before. Sure. Is, is that the demographic thing? Is that a global phenomenon or is it just oh, yeah. USA? Yeah. Yeah. So definitely all, you know, Japan, Europe. In fact, Europe and Japan obviously have a much worse demographic problem than the U.S. The U.S. is actually through the worst of it. It just doesn't come back for a while until kind of the echo boom, you know, kind of finds its way. But, you know, certainly the largest demographic right now actually is millennials. It's actually bigger than the baby boom. The problem is, is they're in those early non-productive sure. years. Formative but, almost. Yeah, right. yeah, formative years and so forth. So, yeah. So, not that anybody would have a favorite super cycle, but if you could uh, point, point the finger at uh, one of those big three as being the big driver for future returns, which, which one are you most the, concerned about? It's the demographic. It really kind of dom it's the cycle that dominates all of those cycles. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's just not on everybody's radar is that, you know, China isn't in that phase right now, but they're going to enter that phase due to the one child policy. And so they start to hit a really big decline in working age population, you know, in a five-year horizon. And, and they're also the only country going through a debt super cycle right. right now. So we have a lot of worries about Chinese growth as we move our way through that. So you chose demographics. Is that because of the sort of predetermined almost like it's, it's a... It's a fixed element in everybody's model, or is it that no, it isn't in anybody's model? Yeah, I think the problem is it's so slow moving and kind of so obvious that it gets ignored when it actually explains a ton about buying behavior. And, and, and so a lot of things will be attributed. You know, for example, you know, there's a lot of supply side rhetoric about the Reagan revolution, but it was primarily a demographic. You just had this huge group of baby boomers get moving into their formative house buying years, but it had been delayed by two recessions, you know, that Volcker had essentially started to kill inflation. Right, sure. And so you, you had this just unprecedented level of pent up demand, you know, due to two recessions and unbelievably high interest rates. And so as soon as those interest rates started falling, in the 80s, you got this amazing super cycle of home buying. Yeah. And, you know, everybody could say, well, that was supply side. And you go, well, no, it really, it's classic Keynesian, oh, <laughs> really, at yeah. the end of the day, and, and so forth. And so, you know, the kind of supply side myth is still really built on that Reagan, you know, that it was because he deregulated and he did this, whereas you go, no, he hit a demographic super cycle. And that's often the case. And, and that's what, you know, we talk a lot about fast rivers you know, at BlackRock. And, 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 you know, it's better to be, you know, is it good to be a good paddler? Is it the, good to have the best canoe technology? Or is it better to find a fast river? All right. The that's a great metaphor, yeah. The, the fast river is the key to all of these things. And, you know, a lot of great investment careers have been made by finding fast rivers. <laughs> wow, and, that's a great yeah, metaphor. Yeah. I will remember that one. Yeah. Um, so I know that you also uh, talk about three phases of central bank policy for the audience. Uh, if you could talk about that, too. Yeah. And, and so this has been a really important thing because, you know, it's always existed. But, uh, you know, this second phase, which I'll talk about, really hasn't existed for any period of time. So when you think of the liquidity cycle, there's a first phase. And that first phase, you know, the forward security market line, so future returns relative to future volatility, 
shifts down and it flattens. And if you think about that process, it means beta does really, really well, but dispersion and volatility fall. And so there's certain kinds of outcomes that we saw from 2009 to 2013 is huge equity rallies, huge high yield rallies, those kinds of things. Sure. There's a phase three that we've seen before in history, which is called the tightening cycle. And it's when you know, the economy is overheated and the central bank has to pull back from that. And, and the exact opposite happens is the security market line shifts up, it steepens, beta does terribly during that time, volatility rises, dispersion rises, and so you get very different outcomes. This transition period in between, which historically has never been more than a month or so, has been in this cycle, we've seen three really long periods. So the taper tantrum right, you know, sure. from May to September of 2013, the first six months of 2015, the first six months of 2016, we're seeing these, we know we're nearer to the end of the liquidity provision that we've seen, but we don't know when it will end. And so the trades that work during that phase one where the exact opposite trades work in phase three, you can imagine small changes in is the Fed going to raise this month or next month actually have huge changes in asset prices, right. you know, much bigger than normal. And we've lived through that now for you know, three different periods. So I know that uh, many people are critical of you know, the Fed and other yeah. central banks, and you're a little bit less critical. Um, if you could talk about that, and then you know another point too, is it your belief uh, that maybe the central banks have had to be so active because there's just fiscal gridlock in two of the big three economies, the yeah. EU and, and the yeah. US? Yeah. So you know, to the first point is, you know, you know, there's this idea that uh, interest rates are being suppressed by the central bank, that it's financial repression. And that somehow if central banks you know, weren't doing what they're doing, interest rates would be a lot higher. Sure. That is definitely the consensus. Right, right. That is definitely the consensus. But if you actually look at it and say, you know, build a model of well, what predicts interest rates, how do you explain interest rates, you know, 90% of it would be about what the level of NGDP is, you know, both here and globally, because rates are all relative, you know, so global matters too. And you know, why were rates falling for every decade for the last three decades prior to ZERP, NERP, you know, all this right, central right. bank activity? And now they're just falling again, but all of this fall is explained by central banks. And what were the previous falls explained by? And what we've seen is that both global NGDP and US NGDP has been a lot lower than people expected. You know, we're running about two and a half right now. And you, know, you can actually build a model that's, that doesn't include any central banks that would say, hey, interest rates in the kind of one and a half, one and a half to 2% range are actually pretty fair. And you haven't used any central bank explanation for what's going on. And so, yeah, the short end is definitely being suppressed. There's just obviously no question about it. But it's just not really clear that the longer end, which is the more economically important end, is being suppressed. Right, right. And it's more the Fed's just reacting to, you know, these changes. And do you think some of the, the choices of the central banks have been sort of almost pushed into a corner where they have to act because there's no fiscal yeah, stimulus? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty clear that, that fiscal stimulus combined with monetary stimulus 
you know, is the right policy prescription. They work better together right. than they do separately. And, and, and sometimes you can have one and the other going the other way. So, you know, Reagan put on this huge stimulus and Volcker was going the other way. He was tightening monetary policy. You know, that works if the stimulus is big enough, you know, and the monetary policy is, you know, not accommodative, but not completely going the other way. But, you know, they, the central banks, you know, as they say, I think there's a book coming out, they're the only game in town. Right. Uh, they are the only game in town. They know they're the only game in town. You know, I think it, you know, it, it, the, only, the biggest criticism I have of the central banks is they've been overactive. You know, they keep trying to innovate. They keep trying to do, they're reacting to very short-term changes in the economy. And I think they're doing it because they have this pressure on them that they are the only game in town. Uh, yeah, I think they would have done a lot better during this of taking a much more medium-term view of economic activity and reacting to that. Right. Because that probably would have led them, you know, at the beginning of 2014 to start raising rates. It would probably be a lot less damaging at that point than it would be now and, and kind sure. of going forward because it's just much more late cycle in the economy now. So all of those ingredients that we've uh, laid out so far, uh, you know, could make for a delicious beef bourguignon <laughs> soup or something like kind of a not so tasty chicken soup. Yeah. Where, where do you see things going? What are the opportunities to have a beef bourguignon and not a yeah. chicken soup for the yeah. you know, the second? I mean, you know, again, I, I think you could get to a point here where you just have it's lower growth, but there's also lower risk associated with it in a sense there's less chance of overheating. And the amount of overheating really is what leads to the size of the downturn. And that overheating can be in the real economy or that overheating can be in the financial economy. And obviously in 2008, it was much more about overheating in the financial yeah, yeah. economy awesome. than it was about the real economy. But you, know, you can get either of those things. And the amount of that overheating you know, will kind of determine the depth of any recession that happens. And so you can make a pretty strong argument. You know, there's this argument that the Fed doesn't have enough bullets because you've needed to, to lower rates 5% in previous kinds of recessions. But you go, well, those were big recessions caused by an awful lot of overheating that we can, you know, identify, you know, housing, uh, you know, uh, SNL, you know, each of these recessions has had its own source of overheating, but sure. it definitely has been there. Uh, if you don't get that overheating, it's pretty easy to imagine kind of short and shallow recessions, which actually was, you know, everybody talks about the lost years in Japan. But, you know, from 90 to 97, they never really had a recession. They just had this kind of up and down growth. Right. Uh, but they didn't overheat. And so they didn't go into a recession. And it really took the Asian financial crisis, which obviously was huge, to really finally put them in a recession. Uh, so you might get a lot more, you know, less ups, less downs. And that's a pretty good, you know, carry environment, fixed income environment. You can make money in that. You don't make 10%, but you can make steady money with probably less downside. Right, sure. Well, thank you very much for being here today. I uh, sure. really appreciate it. Um, if you enjoyed this uh, interview, look for more uh, Take 15s on www.cfainstitute.org. Thanks for being here.
Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.